Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Dark Knight Edition. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards, coming from you to you from Pacific Beach. Joining me, of course, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. He's in Chula Vista. Hello, Tom. What makes you think I want to hear you talk? <laughs> We have so much to talk about. I wanted to get that up front that I don't know if we're going to get to Eric Roberts. But I just wanted to say I casting got, I got Eric, notes on oh, Eric Roberts. Casting Eric Roberts as a second-tier gangster is the perfect Sublime. marriage of actor and character Amazing. in cinema. So great. And, you know, no offense to Tom Wilkinson, who... I think he's great in Batman Begins, though. He he is. This, I, well, Eric Roberts is my favorite of the two mob bosses. Okay. Because he feels more authentic to me. With Tom Wilkinson, I always get the sense it's an Englishman putting on an accent. I mean, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to that, being an Englishman who puts on an accent quite a lot <laughs> yeah, in my professional right. life. But, but he puts that when, accent when I on see... well, and he's so grounded in his malevolence i i love yeah. him in that movie yeah i think he's great i know and eric roberts has the advantage of being like the the b-list version of falcone yeah <laughs> as he is the b-list version of of everything in any part he plays you want to take a guess as to how many credits eric roberts has on imdb <sighs> it's got to be over 200 <laughs> Yes. Am I close? It's over. It is over two hundred. Oh yeah. Is it as high as four hundred? Oh yeah. No six. Right on the money. Six hundred credits. Six hundred and eleven. Yes. When does he eat breakfast? I don't know. In twenty twenty one. I thought this he is, had. Uh, this is this is the Eric Roberts podcast. Yeah, for 2021, <laughs> I thought he had 22 credits, but there that was were January. There were 22 credits, followed by at least a dozen credits that didn't have a year next to them, followed by eight more credits for 2021. So this this year is three months. So he's old. making movies temporally now well i i guess it was stuff he's going to be doing so there's that in the, uni but in the universe this of guy's gonna do 30 different projects this year that's amazing by the way more, po more power to him absolutely I mean, and he has been you, nominated for an oscar you you know you um that's the that's the eric roberts catch-up part of our podcast today well, yeah, that, yeah, and also just thinking about it, he has he has a famous acting sibling 
who prioritizes quality over quantity. So sure. this is clearly it's clearly the niche in that family <laughs> is to go quantity over quality, right? <laughs> Indeed. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough. We are talking about the 2008 <laughs> film, The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan. I think we all know Christopher Nolan. We got to know him through Memento, Memento. and Insomnia. And then he moved on to The Prestige. And then we started getting into The Dark Knights. And then, you know, Inception and Dunkirk, Interstellar, Tenet. Hmm. It's quite a list. This movie had a budget, Tom, of $185 million, up from $150 million. Successive mm. money jumps in yeah. these series. Uh, this movie had an opening weekend of $158.4 million. Made a half a billion, or just over mm. that, in the USA. 534.8 and a billion dollars cumulatively worldwide. Yeah, I remember it. I was and I, I remember was in the all of that, that right? Storm. Yeah, open. It's what I mean. I don't normally go. And, I know you're an you're a like opening day guy, but I'm not normally. I normally hang back, mm-hmm. but not for this. Yeah, and like I said on our previous on our ranking episode, I went to see this movie in IMAX. Yeah, me too. And was driving home, saw another movie theater, was like. Like, the movie was just spinning in my head, and I went and saw it again that day. Well, I'm not going to beat that, but I have to say I did, I did probably go back within two days and see it again. Yeah. So we, we would have declared this a great movie at the time, but we're both saying it's a good movie. Good to very good. Yeah, right. I would say. No, very good. I'm going to settle on It is on very good. Very it is good. very good. Yeah. And I still have the sense of how very good it is when I watch it today. Even mm. on this last viewing. Yeah. But I think, most you know, of that hinges on Heath Ledger, right? This one striking I mean, you, you unbelievable every second great performance. It the I did. I was going to bring this up in the mini sub, but I'll bring it up now. I think, uh, watching this now and like the the last movie I watched involving the Joker, or last new movie I watched involving the Joker was Joker. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think Joaquin Phoenix has been overpraised uh, for that performance. Certainly, I think that movie is overrated. That you know, I may be in the minority there. But um, what I really appreciate here is the balance of the performance. Mm-hmm. I think Joaquin Phoenix is it's it's a it's a knowingly extreme performance, and I think you know you can either run with it or not. Here, the balance of slapstick and serious in the right. performance, I think, is on the money of every charming time. and menacing. Like switching from one to the other in a span of three seconds. Yeah. And, you know, like there's so much. It's really weird to sort of talk about this as like a an underrated performance. But like from the from the beginning of the movie, I'm like, no one no one has given Heath Ledger the credit for his mask and mime work mm-hmm. in the opening scene of this movie. I know. I'm like, every, you know, everyone talks about the pencil trick and, the, you know, the why so serious. I'm like. 
he does the first scene of this movie without his face, without words, and the character is shining it's like, through. It's like Kabuki theater. Yeah, the right. character is just there. Absolutely. From the outset. And I'm like, I, I can't think of many performances that uh, can create a character so fully using so little of what the actor has. Well, and it's interesting you say that because we're getting a lot more of that lately with superhero movies, right? So people who are covered yeah. up. True. Yeah. Um, but to your point, I would argue, like you said, from the moment he's on screen, the fact that he's wearing a mask does not matter. You, you, you see the Joker shining through that mask. Yeah, I, I mean, the the opening scene of this movie. I was gonna say cold open, but bear in mind the 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 title of this movie does not appear till the end of the movie so technically this entire movie is a cold open <laughs> the movie is actually the six minutes of credits there you go <laughs> um, uh, but the opening scene in this movie is as perfect an opening as I have ever seen love it I mean everything in the bank yeah I'm always a little bit disappointed that, that they try and make it seem like the, op- the, the, the music runs into the next couple of scenes which are not as good <laughs> because that gives the sense that it's one scene. No, the bank is one scene and everything within it is Well, and I want to talk about the music just for a second too because, look, these three movies, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, Christopher Nolan wanted each movie to have its own theme. The first theme was fear. This movie's theme is chaos and the third movie's theme is pain. Chaos comes through even in the music. The, that whole front scene at the beginning of the bank when you're seeing the window and the window blows out and then you have the shot of he doesn't have his mask on yet while he's standing on the yeah. street corner and that kind of string music just quickly back and forth. Mm-hmm. It's unsettling. Yeah, very unsettling. Yeah. And... There's just so much great thought put into what you're going to see and hear throughout this movie that's, you know, like you said, I think is is not done well in the next movie. But to me, it's done and much better. And in parts better. of this movie, too, I would say. Okay, so that's that was my next question for you, because where does it not work for you? I start to get it. I mean, most of it's in the second half of the movie. I start to get a flavor of it. In the uh, the scene in the parking garage with the copycat Batmans, mm. it's the first whiff I'm getting that not every scene in this movie is going to be essential. Right. <laughs> I'm like, if we're front loading the movie with this, is this is how we're re-meeting Batman? I'm not sure this movie really has its finger on the pulse of what's relevant and what's not. And I mean, there's a, there's. Aside from the fact that I don't like seeing dogs, especially Rottweilers, which I own, uh, hurt. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the most confusing cameo in all of cinema where 
where Scarecrow, Cillian Murphy's Scarecrow comes back, but Batman doesn't recognize him. I, I don't even want to get go down that rabbit hole. I don't know. I don't know if it's the same guy. I don't know if he's an imposter. I don't know why he looks the same and is played the same. I don't know. I like seeing Cillian Murphy. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, But this, you know, it's, we've gone... F- <laughs> I mean, it's about the drop-off from this heist, you know... It's not... I wouldn't even call it a heist scene. It's a heist movie in miniature. Yes. It's the whole of Reservoir Dogs and the major set piece from Heat. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beginning of your movie. Um, And so when we get into the parking garage, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and overall, I would say... And I guess this is where detail hurts the movie a little bit. There, I can I can instantly say that there's two, one or two subplots that I would get rid of immediately. They there's are several set pieces I would get rid of immediately. I would untangle the convoluted plotting in several parts of this movie. Uh, I'd also not want to make it a movie that's arguing for a benevolent dictatorship, but you know, there's not much you can do about that, really, because <laughs> then then you wouldn't have a movie, right? Um. Uh. Well. Everything involving Reese can go. He's like a human deleted scene. <laughs> get rid of everything, your movie would be none the worse. I would get rid of everything involving Lao and Hong Kong. I okay, mean, if it's I was, was going to ask you about that set piece. If it's not clear enough that he's tangential to the movie, they have him appear in a kind of proto-Zoom call. Yeah. At the gangsters meeting, I'm like, okay, if you need to do this, your character is not essential to the movie. <laughs> you can get rid of him. Yeah, but I, you know... He's... I mean, it gives, it sets up Heath Ledger for the right. red line where so he said... So that's the thing. The, that's the, the thing television that... sets. Yeah, and there's a lot of that in this movie where something like that sets up something else that's great. Because Heath Ledger... In yeah, the but police, I don't think it... You know, in, they... in, in at police headquarters, that's all great. And he's there uh, to get Lau. Yeah, but th- this is this is the weird thing. It's like, I'm when I when I was watching it this time, I was thinking, okay, two thousand and eight, The Wire has been on television, yeah, and you can see the influence that that's had because we need to see, we need to see like at least four levels of policing at any given time right <laughs> so it's like the mayor the da major crime u- crimes unit the plainclothes detective sure it's like it's like i can definitely see the influence of that but i in this context i think it hurts the movie um i like the way that cops and people who work in policing are represented in this movie but i just don't need the level of detail about them. I mean, as okay. soon as I see Ron Dean throwing a scrunched up piece of paper at a, a newspaper clipping of Batman, I'm like, that's all I need. Right. I get it. Ron, and he, I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole here, but yes, you Ron do. Dean. Yes, I do. <laughs> Ron Dean, this, the actor who oh, plays. Uh, yeah, yeah, a detective. Chicago well, some guy. people might not. Some people might not. All right. But you should. But any movie this man... involving Chicago, you're going to see that guy. <laughs> this man, to that point, this man has played a cop in The Fugitive. Fugitive, right. Above the Law. Right. NYPD Blue and Frasier. 
<laughs> this is the 90s cop EGOT. <laughs> and Ron Dean has won. That's fantastic. Anyway, he also, he also has one of my favourite scenes in this. To bring it back to this movie, he has one of my favourite scenes in this movie, which is <laughs> when the shit's going down, <laughs> he's he's at drinking at a bar. <laughs> the, the bartender oh, yeah. looks up at the TV sees there's like a car chase going on he turns to him and says shouldn't you be out there right. doing something <laughs> and he says it's my day it's off my day and takes off. a drink I'm like oh this is great this is great shit that's awesome Ron Dean every time alright well before quickly before we go to a break can I ask you about <laughs> the difference you see because Batman Begins there's a more stylized Gotham City. So it looks like it's more of a comic book universe. In this one, yeah. Chicago is Gotham <laughs> City, and we are full natural. Yeah. Like the natural world. What do you right. like more, the hybrid or Chicago, as, or, you know, Gotham as it is in The Dark Knight? Ooh. It's a good question. You'd think I'd prefer the hybrid, but mm-hmm. I actually, I think, I think they, I think the pantomime in this movie comes with the Joker and everything he's involved with. Like he's the he's the panache and the style. He's the stylized element of this movie, mm-hmm. and so it's good that he has like a a very a realist backdrop around him. Yeah, I I, I, yeah. Um. I mean, and you know, looking back at the other Batman movies we've done, that hybrid has been a problem. We talked about how in Batman Forever, at night, it's like fucking Disneyland. Right. During the day, it's just, it looks like a normal city. Yeah. So at least it's consistent. Right. And it's a consistency that works with the movie and doesn't. I think it, yeah. I think this is, I think what it is more than anything, too, is it represents, this movie represents Nolan's vision at its best. Yeah. And so I really like the use of the city (laughs) in this movie. Not to say that I don't like the hybrid in Batman Begins, because I think that's actually done well as a hybrid better than any other Batman movie, maybe. Ooh. ooh. Okay. Well, let's, I'll pull back from that, but okay. Well. That's a conversation for for everything sequel rebooted, maybe. (laughs) Um, Well, are you thinking of Tim Burton's? Yeah. Because that to me is just more, that's just a full vision. That's not, that's a stylized okay. city. Yeah. Whereas in Batman Begins, you have, you still have Chicago, but you have a Burton-esque style mixed with it. That's the only reason I'm saying that. Okay. So to your point, what I'm, I'm thinking more specifically about Schumacher in Batman Forever yeah, the craziness compared to the regular city during the day, and you know it. It, it really, to me, the, this, this, this. Like I'll take Tim a... Burton's vision, yeah, over right. Batman Begins any day of the I week. I hate what you're saying, right? But I think the shift to a recognizable Chicago cityscape is part of a a bigger project to to sort of change the genre a little bit from a from a superhero movie to a full-on urban crime movie. Yeah. Be- and and the opening scene 
in addition to all the other wonderful things that it does plants us firmly in that world you know it's a heist we're in a heist movie i mean the opening scene of this movie is so much like michael mann's heat yeah it even has a cast member from the movie heat in it (laughs) the guy who plays van 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 zandt in heat and he's not making the same mistakes he did last time he gets right out where with the shotgun it's like i'm not letting bank robbers fuck me around (laughs) (laughs) so i think that i think that that generic tonal shift is uh, is already there and to me it makes it, it's like the color that the joker brings to this movie punches more because the background is so monochrome is mu- right exactly so when he when he dives Str- scrooge mcduck like on a pile of money <laughs> right you know it's like a cartoon moment in a you know in a Czechoslovakian movie from the 60s. It's it's just, it's extraordinary. It's great. (laughs) All right, well, let's take a break and then we'll come back and we'll dive deeper into The Dark Knight right after this. I like to think I know something about beer. But nowadays, even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day, you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need. The Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 2008 film by Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight. All right, Tom. Where, I mean, we both think that this movie, we thought this movie was great when we first saw it. We still think it's a very good movie. Yeah. I got posed this question from somebody just the other day. In your your Dark Knight uh, support group. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Does this movie stay a good movie if Heath Ledger isn't in it? I mean, that is the question, right? And the, 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 yeah, the best reviews I've seen of this movie, all of them to a piece mention. It's hard to imagine what problems you would notice if Heath Ledger weren't there to distract you from those problems. (laughs) Right. And he's right in the middle of those problems. Yeah. Like he's not he's not like he he's not comic well, he is comic relief, but he's also you know, the 
the crux of the movie in so many ways. Well, and I find that interesting, too, because he manages to do that without us finding out anything about his his origin story. Well, that is what I think is the is if this movie has a genius, and I'm not sure that it does. This is the genius. I of agree. The movie. Yes, they Batman Begins was an origin story, right? And the Dark Knight, and you know, classic sequel inversion style, um, laughs in the face of the idea of an origin story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the device of having the Joker have multiple origin stories, none of oh, which amazing. you can trust. Right. And him for, for him to represent nihilism. And, you know, at a time when basically every big franchise is rebooting and telling the origin stories of its... Of its characters, of right. Of its characters, whether it's James Bond or the X-Men movies or what, whatever. Yeah. That's what's happening in cinema. Whereas The Dark Knight, to its absolute credit, is saying, you know what's really fucking scary and interesting? When you don't, don't know. know. <laughs> like, by the end of the movie, I was like... And was when like, you think you know, and then yeah. find out, come to find yeah. out, he was sp- just full of shit, you know, you, you sp- <laughs> just <laughs> to it. be you menacing. Sp- you spend a good half hour of this movie thinking that story about his father cutting up his face is true. Right. Because there's nothing to suggest it's not. Right. And it clearly has had someone slice up his face. Yes. Um, but by the end of the movie, I'm realizing, that you know, the appeal of... I guess this is another generic shift as well. It's like urban crime movie, but also slasher horror. Yeah, because right. No, totally. He becomes like a Michael Myers character. It's like we don't. I mean, until until we find out that it's his sister. Um, let's just say Michael Myers from the first Halloween and the most recent Halloween. All right. When he has no motivation, and that's the level that we're. I mean, why no? I mean, we should all listen to Alfred. Everything Alfred says is true. And if <laughs> yeah. it's not true, it will eventually happen. Yes. Okay? Everything he says. Um, the, the tragedy of these movies is no one listens to Alfred soon enough. Um, but Alfred says it like <laughs> early in this movie. He's right. like, this reminds me of this guy in Burma. Just um, stealing there was no reason. Yeah, there was no reason for this warlord. There was no reason for him to be doing what he was doing either. Um, this is the same. It's like I, it's the same thing. Yeah. And so he tells us that don't believe a word this guy says. He is literally he's a. You know, his only philosophy is no philosophy. Mm-hmm. His motivation is no motivation. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's just beautiful and because what it, he has the line like, "Look what I've done to this city with a couple sticks of dynamite and a few bullets." Yeah. And that's who he is. Yeah. And so, all he wants. <laughs> but then, you know, but at the same time, like a lot of that is performance. And I'm sure it's all part of the same. It's it's all part of the same thing. It's just working together all very nicely. But you have to give the movie credit and the way that the movie's written and the way the movie's directed. Yeah. For the fact that that's the use they make of him. Absolutely. In the movie. And I'm not going to sort of say that because that yeah like the joker is involved in a in a very very convoluted storyline that does not need to be as complicated as it is but in terms of 
character, I guess you'd say, in terms of representation, mm-hmm. they are right on the money in how they execute that. And that's behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. Yeah, it's not right. like it's not like he turned up on day one and Chris Nolan's like, I've got a great idea. What yeah, if right, what if he has right. no origin story? Yeah. Um It was all you know, it's, part it was baked into the cake. That was part of the plan for this movie. Yes, I think so. So that that is that that impresses me. That's that's part of the reason why this is a very good movie. A big part of why it's a very good movie. But So let's take the other Yeah. You know, is there enough there there in the transformation of Harvey Dent into Two-Face and whatever angst Batman is going through, kind of learning his limitations? This, uh, <laughs> I characterize it. I, I characterize it. It's more in the next movie, but there's a lot of it here. Uh-huh. Batman doesn't want to be Batman. Right, right. He periodically opts out of being Batman. He's not very good at being Batman. Okay, so <laughs> that's what we got going on here. Um, Harvey Dent is a really interesting one because, uh, again, I think uh, that no, and this is the same with Catwoman in the next movie. Nolan's idea of, and this fits in with Joker too, like there's no transformation of Harvey Dent into Two Face. He's already Two Face when the movie begins. That's right. my theory. Like the 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 face burning off, the half the face burning off is 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 the trigger moment. It's the it's a cosmetic. There's something that doesn't click for me in that though. Right. Yeah. No. I'm not. I'm not saying it as a wholly positive thing. Right. Because it is. You know. There. But the fact that he's already called Two Face. That's mm-hmm. already his nickname. Right. He already decides life or death matters with a coin, with a two headed coin. Um, when, you know, the scene where he pulls one of the Joker's men aside and starts interrogating him. It's that's like, where, well, that, that's if he's, where a, they if he's lose a villain, me. there's no, dif- you know, this scene right. will play no differently. That's if he where was they lose me. The idea yeah. that he's walking away from that scene and then he turns back around to go torture somebody. Yeah. There just wasn't enough two-face that I saw within him, even though you have the two-headed coin. You know, those, tertiary is, you know, him being called Harvey Two-Face down at the police station, that's, you know, that doesn't make the man a bad, you know, that doesn't turn him into a bad person. That wouldn't be enough. He's He's an idealist at the beginning, right? He, well, he and he just, wants in on this secret group. He wants to be with Gordon and Batman. He wants to take action with them. Hmm. Well, I I just think I think the way that Nolan and the you know and the the is it Jonathan Nolan who also wrote this movie? Yeah, I think so. The brother. Yeah. And go and Goya. The way they see it is that there is no transformation. That that Harvey Dent is two fake. They are literally two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they they pull less successfully pull, or the, not that this is wholly successful. Less successfully, they do the same thing with Selena Kyle and Su- Catwoman in the next movie. There's no transformative moment. I think it's just how he sees Batman villains. Um, right. And you know the best example of that is. Heath Ledger's Joker, where it's like, this is the guy. He might put makeup on, he might dye his hair and wear a suit, but this is the guy. Like, there's no, he doesn't fall into a vat of anything 
No, exactly right. <laughs> you know, so I I get that, and it you know it has varying degrees of success depending on the individual villain. I'll speak up for how Aaron Eckhart plays the role because I I really like that actor. I do too. What I I think that I think he's definitely watched both Lee Jones and Dee Williams. Yeah. I see that because he he's like playing it right between those two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's right. never too much of either of them. It's perfectly perfectly done. But I agree with you that the movie is not doing him much favors in terms of allowing him to have an arc and a development right. and, a, and a villain's transformation. Yeah. And when and when his face burns off, it's kind of cosmetic at that point. Mm-hmm. Which may have been the point, but I don't like what I don't know what's satisfying about that as a storyline. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, I um, think yeah, I agree with you there. Um and uh you know, we we've we've talked in previous podcasts about how the Batman movies have always had a problem juggling its villains. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's kind of seamless here. How I th- he, I, I I agree with that too. I I had it spoken... kind of the torch passes from Joker to Two Face right. really well here, and and that's in that is in the writing. That I, yeah. I you know that's that's there. Their scene yeah. together at the hospital is really great. <laughs> it is. It's really. Good. I love that. I well, I loved. Uh, I mean. There are so many moments in this movie that remind me of late... Uh, when Heath Ledger reminds me of late Marlon Brando, and the movie really leans into that. Mm-hmm. So the scene where he dresses up as a nurse right. for no reason. He could have been a male nurse. Right. Could have been a doctor. Right. Could have been anything. I mean, he dresses up as a, as like a, a sexy nurse as well. Yeah. It's the, the additional part of it. Um, with, with, with nurse's shoes, like mm-hmm. the awkward clanking shoes. Uh, it reminds me of a scene in the Missouri Breaks where Marlon Brando appears in drag for literally no reason. Um, and then in the interrogation right. scene, they, they shoot him like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Uh-huh. There's a lot of weird intertextuality. And, like, two scenes directly lifted from Michael Mann's Heat. You know, filming Heath Ledger like he's Marlon Brando. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> and then the end of the movie is just the man who shot Liberty Valance. You know, it's the same ending. <laughs> and oh, then, you know, there's great. the whole Godfather part two thing with the mob stuff. Right. So, um, but anyway, that's 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 beside the point. Um Yeah, it's it's a good job that that scene is in there because even by that point I'm like, there's too many set pieces in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and that's no, that's about halfway in the movie. And I yeah, like... so I do I do remember also having conscious thoughts the first time I saw the movie because Joker escaping from prison. Mhm. This is like maybe a little more than halfway through the movie yeah. and it yeah. feels like a a culminating you yeah. know, it it feels like the climax, right? It feels it's like it's a fake. It's a fake climax, right? right? Yeah, and I you mean, have so many story big set pieces too. after it, where you have the hospital thing. Mm-hmm. Then he's like running a game of trying to get the guy killed. On top of yeah. that, uh, followed by the whole, <laughs> you know, the boat scene, the Batman yeah. having to get the detonator from him. 
followed by a final thing with Two-Face. There's a lot after that. Yeah, and the the other part of it is it's it's the same set piece. Mm -hmm. They all involve, like, a choice between two, you know, a life or death choice. Right. Or a choice between two equally difficult decisions. It's like... By the end of the movie, you know, I, I that really wears me down that that Harvey Dent's, you know, two faced shtick at this point is is it gonna be a is it gonna be your wife who dies or your son who dies? It's like we've done a variation of this at least three times. Right. Whether it's the people on the ferries or um you know, choosing between Rachel and Harvey. Mm-hmm. And and I know that they're calling back deliberately, and that it's revenge. So right. you, you're repatterning and all that sort of stuff. But I just think you know, uh, filmmakers and screenwriters should have better sense to repeat themselves so much within one movie. Yeah, I'll agree. Uh, yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, the the fairies is definitely one of my set pieces that could go. Okay, I was going to ask you. You could you could also just talk about it. You don't need to see it. Right. When you think about it, you don't mm-hmm. ever need to see it. But you I certainly... guess it's all part of this. That's all part of. <laughs> I don't even know. Is it the B story or the C story? For... Right. <laughs> like, is Batman the B story or the C story for you? <laughs> well, this has come up before, hasn't it? Like, yeah. how is Bat- Batman as a supporting character in his own story? For some reason, you could definitely make that case here. But for some reason, it doesn't. Because everything you're talking about, as far as like what happens on the barges and that you know th- those choices yeah. that those characters me- make, are all part of Batman's underlining story of him trying to be a symbol for the people of Gotham to be better people and make the, the better choice, right? Yeah. So he doesn't want them in their hockey gear with guns trying to kill criminals but he does want them to feel compelled to try to save one another as opposed to hurt one another and and mm-hmm. there that's a storyline for him at play throughout the movie right yeah i i mean it that does it doesn't bother i don't think that batman is sidelined here as much as he has been in say batman returns which again i didn't have a problem with because what they do with him is great and what they do with the other characters is magnificent the same is true here um it's again i think it's just it sets it the first time that batman retires right it's the it's you know you're on a slippery slope because from then on in the trilogy, he does nothing but periodically retire. Yes. And then he passes that fever to Alfred, who then retires. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, so that's that part of it. And I'm try- again trying to think about this in context. And we have, you know, we have we have the Daniel Craig Bond movies, which are all about James Bond not wanting wanting to be James right. Bond and retiring at the end of every movie. Yeah. Um, so this is obviously not something that's particular to this franchise. It's something that... Maybe in that time period. <laughs> in the process of rebooting stuff... Yeah. There's a... Ten, I don't know. My theory is that 
you don't want to overlap with the material that's already been made so you want your your work to be in and around that so there's that there's that theory that Matt Myra has on James Bonding that in the Daniel Craig timeline all of the Bond movies happen between <laughs> between uh, Quantum of Solace and Skyfall gotcha. which is obviously ludicrous but that's kind of what they're writing to that idea of like you know we're filling in the gaps and you know it, it's 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 less of a problem here but certainly in the ne- it certainly sets the tone for the next movie for this yeah for, for sure. an anti batman right um and it's a weird kind of storytelling that that bothers me a little bit I'm just trying to think of, you know, the fairy sequence. What you're saying is right, but does Batman even know that that's happening? <laughs> he, well, it, you know, there's the moment at the end when the Joker thinks he has him caught. He's got the bar on his neck and yeah. he's saying, you know, and here we go. But it doesn't happen mm-hmm. the way he thought, and ba- be, you know, Batman just has this faith in the people of Gotham to do have done the right thing. But I think that's a lie. the the mo- The movie keeps telling us that on the surface. Mm. But I think the problem with this movie and the next movie is that the this movie's sense of how society should work is that one person should one person who is a good person who is morally responsible should be responsible for the entirety right. of society and that democracy is valueless. I really do think, <laughs> you know, obviously the surveillance part of the movie, you know, many people have commented on that as it's sort of like saying, sure. you know, surveillance state is good. Obviously within the storyline in the movie, Lucius Fox does say he this is, is immoral. The... Yeah, right. But the movies then says, but in your hands, it would be fine. It's like, oh, so you're not arguing for dictatorship. You're arguing for benevolent dictatorship. Right. But nowhere in that it does democracy get a play. Every time we see democracy yeah. in action in this and the next movie, or it's, any kind of it's, egalitarianism, it's morally it's reprehensible, but I only need to do it for like a half hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, it makes me think of that Homer Simpson quote i'll said it before and i'll say it again democracy (laughs) doesn't doesn't work work. and i think that's that's what this movie so while the movie keeps telling us that you know through various dialogues and storylines the people should be allowed to choose for themselves the will of the people should govern uh in this and the next movie the politics of the movie are a little more sinister yeah and saying actually these people are all helpless children and we need one person to speak for them at all times yeah the protector yeah Um, all right well let's take another break and then we'll come back and i want to talk about some set pieces how about that oh that could go on for a while well (laughs) this movie has more than some set pieces (laughs) all right we'll be right back after this If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, 
and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug the Dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we are back yet again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here finishing up the 2008 film, The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan. All right, Tom, I said we'd talk about set pieces. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about how much we both love that bank heist scene at the beginning. Flawless. Which is a set piece. Yeah. To end and all I, set pieces. It's Yeah, it's the one, that, that's the one that makes you lean in in this movie. Yeah. But I do not mind telling you, Batman cruising around in the Batmobile and then getting on the Bat Pod after it's destroyed and the Joker chasing down Harvey Dent, that whole set piece to me is fucking amazing. And every time that truck flips over, the semi flips over. Yeah. I am reastounded by the quality of filmmaking in that moment. Yeah. It's fucking great. It's the centerpiece of the movie. Yeah. I wish that I wish that the plodding around it was a little bit clearer. Um, I mean, I don't get lost, but No, it just I wish but this I, was, I, I, I wish this I was being done for a more high stakes reason because it, right. you know, it feels like, as you alluded to, it feels like the climax of the movie, but it's actually the midpoint. Yeah, exactly. Um, and all based on a lie, like a it's all a ruse. Right. Uh, but the action itself, yeah, is 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 unassailable. Um, tell you one thing, I don't. I, I think this scene also, and I don't think it detracts from it in any way. Well, it does. But not enough for me to go, this isn't cool and brilliant and uh-huh. the best action in the movie. Uh, the worst part of all the movies in this trilogy are the cutaways to people driving and their lame, redundant quips. Which are all <laughs> some kind of variation on, I gotta get me one of those, or right. that's gotta hurt. But said less interestingly. Yes. And I don't know why this still happens in movies. You're in Why for can't a... we have decent cutaway dialogue? <laughs> like, these people are in the movie for ten seconds. Give them something funny or interesting to say. Not just the same recycled, you know... Nonsense. Platitudes. I mean, it's like, you know... Right. It gets it gets what the ops room in the next movie is the worst. Like, it, it's yes. just... It is like just an echo of what we've just seen, right? But I don't know. It 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 just makes every every time I find in both in Batman Begins and and this movie, I remember at the time thinking they really couldn't write better dialogue to be <laughs> slotted into the the cutaways in these action scenes. Anyway, man, uh, but that problems. doesn't that doesn't detract from anything. And th- and this is the only movie in the trilogy that doesn't end with. 
uh, Gary Oldman bumbling around with technology like Anakin or and or Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace to save the day. <laughs> so I'm happy about that. All right. Everything fine. is very every you know that nothing happens by accident. It's all very intentional. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about. You know, we have a, a replacement actor, and we've talked oh, a little Maggie bit yeah. about. We've talked about Heath Ledger. We gave a little talk about Aaron Eckhart, mm. and uh, so how did you like the replacing of Rachel Dawes? It needed to happen if that character was <laughs> to continue. It's definitely. I mean, you would be out of your mind if you say that's not a recast up. Do from Katie Holmes. Mm-hmm. Do. Does she do anything more interesting than Katie Holmes? I don't think so. <laughs> so why is it a cast up then? Because the little she has to do is done much better. Okay. Spe- you know, like just that one scene that was like a walk and talk of her leaving the courtroom with Harvey Dent. Right. And just their repartee, I'm like, oh, we're in a different league here. Like, even even this kind of like stilted placeholder dialogue feels better in her hands. Um, it's, I mean, and, you know, this is not about any one particular actress, but there's something so weirdly backwards about the Rachel character. Like, she feels like she comes from a, a like, a Victorian literary melodrama or something. It's like, it's all about, it's all about <laughs> letters that are lost and stolen, and it's just weird. It's a weird, it's the thing that, the character in both movies that doesn't work, but if but given that it doesn't work, I'd rather see Maggie Gyllenhaal attempt it than Katie Holmes. So I think it's interesting, actually, that you say that because I never, I never hated Katie Holmes in the first movie. That is interesting. But bad, upon Mike. watching the movies back to back, I found myself thinking. I, I would have liked to have seen more interesting choices made in her scenes between she and Bruce in that first movie. Yeah, that's and true. And I'm getting that from Maggie Gyllenhaal, and she's just great in this movie. Yeah. She yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, and I on, also, on her end, she's really strong. I just... It's a dead end for that character. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Well, that's but what also, I was. Gonna, that was the next thing I was going to say. That? I think that's kind of a big swing for this movie to kill off that character. Well, here's a here's a here's a what if scenario. What if the person who dies in the middle of the movie is Jim Gordon after all, mm-hmm. instead of the fake out? And I, and believe me, I do not want less Gary Oldman in either this or the next movie. Right. This is my favorite of his performances in any movie. I agree. Because I do not see this level of subtlety from him in most of his Exactly. I love him in these movies. I know, like, I've, like, I know you are capable. It's like knowing he is capable of this in addition to, you know, his, his more pantomime stuff, shall we say, is, makes me very happy. Um... But again, it's an issue of like, what what do we do? You know, what do we, what do we do with him? And something this watching it this time round, I kind of, you know, I 
alternative dimensioned it and thought, like, we're all expect we know one of the things we know about Gordon is that he becomes Commissioner Gordon. What if he dies before he gets to become Commissioner Gordon? Right. You know, rather than killing off a character who to many people's mind never really worked and was certainly hated when it was played by another actor and you feel like they just want to give them just enough screen time before they can kill them off so it doesn't look like we just want to kill off this character. Like I think <laughs> I think that would have been a stronger choice and I don't remember I just remember thinking it seemed like a big waste for of everyone's time including Maggie Gyllenhaal's. Mm. Whereas I thought if you I don't know if if they'd have done more with Gordon going forth in this in the end of this movie and then the next movie maybe I would have felt differently but I don't think they give enough Gary Oldman enough interesting different stuff to do from now on where it wouldn't matter if they killed him when he when they killed him it'd be a big loss to certainly not in the third movie yeah no um, I mean, you wouldn't get to see him in his pajamas, a la Pat right. Engel, but <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, I thought that, yeah. So it, it was like they want to kill someone off, but they went with an easy mark, low-hanging fruit, maybe. Maybe because you kill off Jim Gordon, then everything's off the cards. Because one of the things that was universally loved about Batman Begins was his performance. Yeah. No one had ever seen this level of restraint from him before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he... And I remember someone, a critic, saying at the time when Batman Begins came out, it's like, you know, he he represents Gotham City more than any other character in this thing. It's like, this guy who's like wants to do the right thing but is too weak right. and is surrounded by corruption it's like he he is the center and i agree yeah and it, and you know i like the fact that in this movie he gets the chance to say you know i save batman especially to his kid right and that's yeah. a lovely lovely moment this time i actually saved him you know and then the movie makes it clear that yeah this guy is the only true hero um in this like the only Honest, you know, the only uncomplicated hero in this is Jim Gordon, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'd rather have not gone with that fake out death to get to that point. All right. That's fair. Uh, I don't think he's used as well as other characters in, in this movie. But, you know, I'm so glad I'm so glad he's there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what do you have left in your notes? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm trying to think of what what big things oh, stand out. To we you haven't or... talked about. Well, let's let's talk about um, Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman. Okay, so I think they warrant a discussion. It's now you fa- have problems with the Michael Caine version. No, of I re- I realize not, what you... not him specifically, but like their relationship, right? No, I so yeah, I have I what what I've said before, and I realized it sounds like I'm I'm picking on Michael Caine, who's one of my favorite all time actors. In fact. Right. Um, as you can tell from the nasal quality of my voice and my <laughs> uncontextually loud dialogue. 
Um, I think. Um, are you frozen? Nope. Okay, good. Oh, you were frozen there for a second. Sorry. Oh, no, let's carry on. So much. We can use so much of this. Um, so I realize that, that like, the 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 excessive sentimentality all comes in Dark Knight Rises. I kind of yes. conflated the two in my mind. That was my question. That's what I thought yeah. maybe happened. It's none of it's here. Okay. Um, and it it was to me it was all about contextualizing why they make Alfred and and Bruce so disconnected in Batman v Superman, mm-hmm. like. The only way I could rationalize it in my head was it's like they thought it was getting a bit too if much. If this one with... was dripping with melodrama. <laughs> they thought it was a bit too much when Michael Caine is literally crying his way through an entire movie. Right. So it's like, I can see the rationale. Obviously, you take it too far in the other direction, then you lose the whole point of Alfred. So I'd ra- yeah. still rather have teary-eyed Michael Caine. Um, but in this movie, I mean, he's... <laughs> You know, I, I've made the note several times. It's like, why aren't people listening to Alfred? He's a psychic, mm-hmm. and he only speaks in truths. Right. <laughs> um, but the, uh, I love so much about they. I mean, you know, he was another revelation, and no one thought he was right for this character in Batman Begins. Uh-huh. And then when they saw him in the movie, they're like, of course, perfect. Of perfect course, he's great. Yeah. But it's in this Michael one, he's fucking this, Kane. In this one, he really consolidates that. He has so many wonderful moments. I love to think that the very nice man he talks about who flies Bruce Wayne to uh, Hong Kong is his character from Jaws the Revenge. And nothing in the film. We never see this guy. Right. We only know his job and that he's a very nice man. So... I'm still willing to believe that that is that his character is. from Jaws the Revenge. Oh, that's great. Um, I love that. Now, I don't... Do you even know if Morgan Freeman is Lucius? Is that part of the comic book world? I don't even know. Lucius really Foxes, yeah. And okay. from the little I've seen of the comic book world, and listeners, please correct me, uh, iconographically, he's... the, the So, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. If you only have the movies to go on, Lucius Fox is a cross between Q and Uncle yeah. Remus. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> now, maybe this is like this in the comic books too, but it's a, it's a strange mix. <laughs> but <laughs> works, though. It works really well. He's and, fucking you know, great. Come I, on. I, whenever, whenever, you know, you get the scenes which are just, you know, Bond, uh, Bond at Q branch, basically, but but done as Batman and Lucius Fox. Yeah. And that's and that's not me forcing that. That is clearly what's and we know how much Nolan loves the Bond movies. He of talks course. about them all the time. Um I that's my preferred interjection of the Bond universe into Batman. Uh yeah. Oh uh, yeah, okay. Beyond, you know, I I'd rather that than the Moonraker style cold open of the next movie. Um, and actually I think maybe you know I I noticed several times I was like you know I'm all for putting Bond where it shouldn't be but of course you are (laughs) let's not come on but the you know some of my biggest problems with the Lao Hong Kong storyline is that 
you feel like Nolan wants to have international espionage as part of his story, and it just doesn't I literally think that's all it was. They just wanted to see Batman outside of Gotham, that Batman could go somewhere else. And it really harms the story because it's so Gotham City is so central to this movie more than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so I'm you know my he's my preferred Bond vehicle, um, and it's you know it's a shame I I like the fact that you know he calls Batman out on his fascist tendencies, but mm-hmm. it's a shame that you know their solution is well if you just put a good guy in charge dictatorships are okay. I shouldn't really fall on more. I'll help you this one time. Yeah, you shouldn't really fall on the character's shoulders. It shouldn't fall on Morgan Freeman's shoulders, you know, especially when you're one of the few men of color in the movie. It it shouldn't be, you know. And the right, only, uh, and that that's one of my lingering problems with this movie is it just, you know, this this movie is just as as we are leaving the. George W. Bush era and so So much of what he did is at play in this movie and for the greater good is is what is what the movie's presenting. Yeah, it's 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 the it's a classic right wing argument that, you know, mass surveillance is okay because it catches people committing crimes. So it's permissible. Right. And that's what that you know the Facebook HQ wall uh, is all about. You know mm-hmm. the the massive the sonar wall. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's disingenuous the way it's questioned in the movie because they come out on its side in the end. Yeah. Right. They say, well, as long as long as the person, as long as the as long as it's a good dictator, you can have a dictatorship. And the next movie confirms that i think exactly yeah um so you know they could have used the next movie to walk some of that back but they actually doubled down and they double down instead um it's i i also i mean you know lucius fox you know has this moral dilemma thrust on him but he is generally you know he is a one of the the few kind of un uncomplicatedly heroic characters in the movie yeah uh, but the other people of color in the movie don't fare as well. Um, mm-hmm. I I mean I I love the actor who plays the commissioner. I've seen him in he's British. I've seen him in all oh, kinds yeah, of things. Oh yeah, he's great. He's also in he's in a lot of sitcoms. He's a very funny man. I just I'm really uncomfortable with this idea of like him pulling the whiskey out from under the desk. It's like here's how I handle problems, and you know like. <laughs> He it's like saying he dies because he's a you know he's a drunk and that's his Achilles heel. I don't go to that level. I don't say just because he's got whiskey in a drawer is he's a drunk. But he's well, <laughs> speaking from experience. Um, <laughs> but uh, but beyond that, the fact that you know the the uh, a Latina character is the. Is the traitor right? Is the traitor and yeah, instead yeah. of Ron Dean, who and they're kind of playing a game there, where it's like, well, you don't expect it to be her, because you know, in the same way, you don't expect um, disabled people to be bad people. You know, that's they're <laughs> to playing have a with bomb all those on their kinds. wheelchair in, they, in Congress, <laughs> apart, apart from Zack Snyder. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, you're 
you're playing that game, but in the end, it's the people of color who end up on the losing end of that both times. Yeah. Um, I didn't even... I, I don't know if I even know from the storytelling, from what's on screen. Was Ron Dean involved? Was he working for the Joker? I think he was. That's not clear, though, is it? It's not completely clear, but I think he <laughs> took... But he wasn't one of the names. I thought he took one of... Uh... I thought he who took who took Rachel was it the other officer they were both in the car oh who took Rachel yeah see why is the movie it was the woman right I don't know why is the movie asking us to keep track of this at such a level true (laughs) but I thought Dean took Two-Face I thought he took Harvey okay I know. I noticed this time around that they were both that he was getting into a little car with those cops. But um, I also noticed because doesn't Two Face shoot him? Right. He flips his coin, or twirls twirls it on again, the bar. It's it's off screen. I don't know whether they they envisioned a. I thought you hear a gunshot, and then he becomes Mister Freeze. But, but later like you see a... Dean. You see Dean as. Commissioner Gordon is destroying the bat signal. He's standing right behind him. Well, I guess they did. I guess he didn't then. I don't know. I think it might, might just be a continuity error. I think what happened was he shot him. He fell into a bucket of ice and he was supposed to be <laughs> Mr. Free. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. One of the one of the biggest star. There's a huge star in this movie in a small role. Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, yeah. As the newscaster, and there were rumors at the time that they were setting him up to be the Riddler. Especially oh, wow. given that he's the victim, that. the victim of the Joker at one point in the movie, and that this was supposed to be the incidents that psychologically That's turned him into Riddler. Interesting. And I would have loved that, but I do wonder if casting such a known actor was a deliberate ploy to make it a red herring, so you didn't see where the next villain was coming from. Otherwise, I don't know why. I don't know why. I know his. I know his stars fallen somewhat, but I don't know why it's Anthony Michael Hall doing such a. You know. Or is that just? I. I. I mean, he. I think. I mean, I. You know. Because that's a thankless role. It's a thankless role, but it's a you know. A. Uh, a good sized part in a huge movie. I. I. You know. There's no. If I was him, he was I'd in say the Breakfast yes. Club. Yeah, but that's. <laughs> and fi- finally, two he's, decades he, before this movie, you know, he's the star of Halloween Kills. He said, not too confidently, that's the title of the next one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to wait for that one, Tom. All right. Anything else for The Dark Knight, sir? Yeah. Um, Did you notice what the acronym for the major crimes unit is that is said in this movie. MCU. MCU of all yeah. things. That really stood out to me this time. Cause, cause <laughs> Did it? yeah, because I don't know. We'd have to look up when they start using the term MCU in popular parlance, but I imagine we're starting to, the seeds of that are starting right in Marvel starting to build its, 
yeah. cinematic universe. I just thought it was a very point for a but DC. But you just thought? Do you think it, it was purposeful? I don't know. I I've, it felt, given what happens next with it being, you know, two rival cinematic universes based on yeah. superheroes, it got me. It certainly got me thinking. Got the juices that. flowing. Got the juice. <laughs> got the juices flowing. I mean, and you, just to just to sort of you know, and we can talk. We can offset this to the next episode because, you know, the the first scene of the next movie is the last scene of this one. But um, we we injure <laughs> Batman at the end of this movie. And right. I just I just thought like like watching back after having seen the the Dark Knight Rises, it's like they really wrote themselves into a story hole here. By having <laughs> Batman not able to be Batman because everyone thinks he's a villain. Yeah. Not not that he's not, but <laughs> everyone <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong about that. Not wrong about way. that. Um but they think he's the guy who, you know, murdered tried to murder Dense, uh, right. Gordon's kids and wife. Um, and it's like, yeah, that sort of that burdens the next movie with having to get out of that story. Hole. Yeah, that, yeah, I agree with you completely on that. The, I think that movie feels the weight of it. All to have that kind of liberty valence, you know, print print the print the legend, not the truth. <laughs> That's not mm-hmm. the line, but something. Something akin. Something akin it. to that, which is fine. It's a nice button, but it seems a long way to go. It's a good cliffhanger, but it's a yeah. But you, I, this, this is the other thing. Like, are we going to talk about this where we where we get to the next episode? But I deeply misunderstood the storyline of the Dark Knight Rises when I saw it. <laughs> to to the point where I and and partly the end of this movie is to blame because not enough is made of that broken leg. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's the biggest thing for the first half of the next of movie. The, of the movie, right? And I was like, I remember watching when I watched Dark Knight Rises for the first time. I was like, I don't remember him breaking his leg. <laughs> it's like, and I would have thought it would heal after eight years. Eight years. Um, so that 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 was very confusing for me, and I realize now it's this film's problem for, you know, if they were going to flash back to anything. At the beginning of the next movie, it shouldn't have been the Harvey Dent memorial speech that I remember very clearly. Yeah, <laughs> it should have been Batman His limping fall. around. Yeah, going, limping. Oh, my leg is going to take at least eight years to heal. <laughs> All right, well, we'll talk about that when we get to The Dark Knight Rises. That's it for The Dark Knight. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have something to add, you please let us know. You can, of course, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Write us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. We are going to see you next time for The Dark Knight Rises. Say goodbye, Tom. That's a more like it, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> oh my gosh. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>